morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning and to be able to, to open God's Word and, and, uh, and to be able to, to preach to you. Um, if you would open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah t- chapter 29 is where we'll be taking our text from this morning. Man, what a great time of, of worship. Thank you. Um, that was just an absolutely beautiful time, wasn't it, of, uh, of worship this morning. Just a real blessing. Um, really, really spoke to my soul. So I thank you for that this morning. Um, it was a couple of weeks ago now. I don't know if, if you follow on, if you have Twitter accounts or maybe on your Facebook account or maybe you just saw in the news, there was a, a, a picture of a, of a young Syrian boy who had washed up on shore in, in Turkey. Um, you could see him with his red sneakers, Velcro sneakers, and uh, he was uh, uh, a result of the refugee crisis that is taking place today in, uh, in the country of Syria. You know, in, in Syria, there are six million um, displaced people. Imagine six million displaced people in a small country of probably 30, 35 million. I'm not exactly sure how big Syria is. Three million of those are actually outside the country. Um, so six million displaced of those six million, three million people have had to, to flee Syria. I don't know about, how, how many of you all get the, the Courier-Journal? Anybody in here get the Courier-Journal? You get the Sunday paper? I'll, I'll raise my hand as well. My, my kids and, and others think that it's kind of crazy that I actually get the newspaper. Um, but there's something about sitting down with the newspaper and, and getting the, the black stuff on your fingertips. I don't know what it is, but there's something about having the newspaper in your hand, being able to open it up and, and work through it. Well, the front page today, if you'll, if you'll get on the news, if you'll get the newspaper, there's an article about a family that came from Syria that just arrived in, in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a really long article, but it's an excellent read. Um, talking about this man and his family and the things that they have gone through because of the, the wickedness of the day. And uh, he's, a, he's a farmer. The article said that he was a farmer, um, has nothing more than a high school education. But uh, all of a sudden, with the crisis in, in Syria, they lost everything that they had. They moved in with his father. Um, eventually, they had to escape from, from where his father was living as well. And they went to a refugee camp in, in Jordan, have been there for several years as they processed their paperwork. And it's an extensive process um, to, to do your paperwork and they, they were just given, um, just arrived in Louisville, Kentucky. Imagine going from Syria um, to a desert, um, and literally they were in the desert, uh, a refugee camp. And um, then from a refugee camp, they went to a poverty-stricken village, which was, was overrun with refugees, so there was no work. Um, they were getting like $15 a day per person or a week or something like that, maybe even a month. Like, I can't remember what the article said for food. Um, and then it talked about how they flew into Louisville, Kentucky, and, and all they could see was green. Um, if, you, if, you, if you ever get the opportunity to, to go to the desert, maybe here in the United States, you go out to, to Nevada or something like that, man, the, it, it is striking. And, and personally, I, I love the desert. I, I think it is one of the most beautiful places in the world, just the striking contrast in tans and browns. Um, but they came from tans and browns to the bright green, blue black grass of of Kentucky, and uh, just amazed by that and, and the beauty of, of our city. And uh, it reminds us of the, the tremendous opportunity that God is giving us to, to reach out to a people group that, that are, are almost impossible to reach out to in Syria. 
Um, as the IMB, we have missionaries in just about the whole world. There are a few places that we don't, Syria being one of those, just because if you're American in Syria, you'll get shot um, just for being there. I mean, it's just not a safe place to be. So we don't, have, we, don't have, we don't have missionaries on the ground in Syria, but we have people who are desperate to hear the gospel in Syria. We have people who are fleeing the bloodshed because of the, the wickedness and, 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 and the, the results of, uh, of wickedness from a dictator to, to overzealous religion to just a religion that, that, that often is more destructive than it is helpful. Um, Luke works with us in the, the Jenkins Center and he's doing his PhD and has an emphasis on Islam. And, and I'm sure he's talked to you or, or perhaps you could ask him someday about the, the Dar al-Salam versus the Dar al-Harab. Um, Dar al-Salam is the house of peace. Dar al-Harab is the house of war. And, and we are the house of war, whereas the Middle East is the house of, of peace. And, and of course, just hearing that, you ask a question, how can that even be? Um, this is the house of peace. And, and, and this is what, what we hope to share with those who come from, from places of war and, and, and places of, 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 of violence um, from a place that they say is the Dar al-Salam, the, the house of peace, yet they come to the house of war, which is actually the house of peace because we know that peace comes from Jesus Christ alone. And unless you know Jesus, you do not know peace. And so actually we find Syrians and Iraqis and, 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 and Somalis who come to what they call the house of war to find peace. A good friend of mine um, a couple of years ago, was uh, was in Iraq in Baghdad. He was studying in school, and uh, he was in college at the time. And he realized that uh, that Islam wasn't wasn't right. He just looked around, and and he could see the the war and the fighting and and the hatred. And it struck him that the Bible said Jesus said to love your enemies. And he thought those are the strangest words ever. Love your enemies. How can you love your enemy? But this ethic of Jesus caught his heart. And he began to ask a lot of questions. So, so while he was in Baghdad at the university asking questions, his, his friends discovered what he was doing and, and uh, they shot him. He, he ended up getting shot there in, in Baghdad. And as a result of that, he was able to go to Jordan as a refugee. And uh, as a refugee in Jordan, he eventually got um, immigration status to come to the United States. Now, when they were in Jordan... Um, the, the Islamists came and, and the Muslims came and, and they said, now listen, when you go to America, Christians will come to your door. And when they come to your door, take whatever it is they have to give you, but then don't let them in. And he thought to himself, well, this is awesome. When I go to America, Christians are going to come to my door. And when they come to my door, they can tell me about Jesus. Now, he didn't say that to them, but he was pretty excited because he thought, man, this is so cool. I'll go to America and somebody will tell me about Jesus, somebody who really knows Jesus. And so he came to America and he got in his apartment and the first apartment was rough for him because it was full of, of Muslims and he didn't like it. So he moved to another apartment. But he's sitting in his apartment and, and he's, he's saying to himself, well, where are the Christians? It's down on the, the south end near Iroquois Park. And he said the, the Jordanians, they, they said the Christians would come. Well, well, where are they? Well, six months goes by and he's waiting in his apartment for a Christian to come and tell him about Jesus. And uh, finally, at the end of six months, he, he gets frustrated and, 
And uh, he cries out to God and he says, God, I, I don't understand why you don't love me. Why do you not care about me? Please just send me a Christian. And uh, he went home that day and he found on the ground outside of his, his apartment, he picked up a piece of trash and he was going to throw it away, but he realized that it was, it was for a free ESV Bible, a free ESV study Bible. And uh, so he thought, oh, so he wrote away for the study Bible. He thought, maybe this way, someone will bring it to my house and they can tell me about Jesus. Well, instead of bringing it to their ha- his house, they mailed it to him. And so he has this thick, leather-bound ESV study Bible that he can't read. So he gets the study Bible, and, and he's excited on one hand, but on the other hand, he's thinking, I can't read this. So he writes them back. Now, I want you to think about the amazing work of God for just a minute. He writes them back, and, and he says, listen... I, th- I thank you so much for this Bible, but I can't read it. Um, he's writing this with, with Google Translate and, and stuff like that. And uh, he says, listen, I will pay if you'll send someone to my house to tell me about Jesus. I don't want anything. I'll pay you to come to my house to tell me about Jesus. Now, that, that's interesting, isn't it? We don't think a refugee is willing to pay um, for somebody to come and tell them about Jesus. But this is what he's writing, this, this letter. Well, the person who receives this letter, now this is really cool, in Wheaton, Illinois, is the cousin of our Spanish pastor's wife. So in our church at Highview, we have a Spanish pastor, and his wife is from the U.S., and her cousin works for the SV Crossway in Wheaton, Illinois, and she receives this letter. So she calls her cousin and says, hey, I've got somebody willing to pay to hear about Jesus. And uh, so her cousin calls me and says, hey, you've got to go talk to this guy. And uh, so we set up a meeting and, and began a six-month process, a six-month journey of him discovering who Jesus really is and what Jesus had to say. And by the end of that six months, he was, he was saying to me, John, I want to get baptized. I said, well, well, do you understand the implications of that? I said, yes, absolutely. And, and he starts to beg me to be baptized. Now, there's nothing cooler than that, is there? And uh, I'll never forget his, his day of baptism. I said to him, I said, who is Jesus? And he said, Jesus is the Son of God. He's, the, he's my Savior. He's my Lord. There is no other. And so we baptize that brother in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who he loves. And uh, it was just a glorious, glorious day. Not long after that, he's bringing one of his friends to church who then gets saved not too far after. So, you know, God is opening up our world. And God is opening up doors. He's bringing people into our midst that we have an incredible opportunity to share gospel with. They would otherwise not have the opportunity to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah 29, we have this story of, of Jeremiah as, as Jeremiah is writing to, to those who are in exile. And, and he starts off in, in chapter 29 in, uh, in verse 1. He says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, you'll remember that as as the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and and how God um, worked in their lives and and how these young men had been taken into exile into Babylon. Well, these are the people that Jeremiah is writing to. Nebuchadnezzar has come, Babylon has come, and has just basically leveled Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is, is more or less no more. And when, ne- when Nebuchadnezzar, when the, the army, Babylonian army would come in, they would come in and they would take the best and the brightest and they would spread them out all over their world so that a nation that had been vanquished couldn't reunite. Instead, they would spread them 
all over their known world. Well, this is what happened to Israel. They get spread all over the known world. Now, some of them actually go to Babylon, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But many others are spread throughout the land of Babylon and uh, throughout the countryside and throughout all of the area of the world. And the Jews are, are thinking to themselves, Nebuchadnezzar has come and has vanquished us. The Babylonian army has defeated us. And the Babylonian army themselves, they're saying, look at what we have done. Look at how we have conquered Israel. Look at how we are the most powerful nation in the world, right? And, and you know that because you get to, 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 to King Nebuchadnezzar as he builds the statue of himself, right? Making people bow down. And then later as he brags about himself, God humbles him and puts him out in the pasture to, to feed like a wild animal. Very, very proud. Very, very um, joyful in what they have done. Well, you know, we live in a world that takes pride in vanquish. We live in a world that takes pride in destruction. We live in a world that takes pride in the separation of people and families. We live in a world that is power hungry. You need not look any further than, than into the Middle East and, and you see that. You see the power hungry nature of the world. And the world says, look at what we have done. ISIS stands and says, look at what we have done. Al-Qaeda stands and says, look at what we have done. Assad stands and says, look at what we have done. Russia now has entered into the fray and says, look at what we have done. Look at what we are doing. Well, that's what you have there in the very beginning of Jeremiah chapter 29. The world is saying to us, look at what I have done. Jeremiah goes and he starts his letter and it's just, it's beautiful as he starts his letter, he, he writes the letter, and, and in verse 2, he tells who the letter is to, and then in verse 3, and uh, look at the letter itself. It begins with, with verse 4. This says, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, isn't that interesting? God doesn't say to all the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar has spread through the world. God says to all the exiles whom I have sent into Jerus from Jerusalem into Babylon. And he says it in a very interesting way in verse 4. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts. Now just, just real quickly, in, in the majority of your Bibles, my guess would be that the Lord there is the big L and then the O-R-D of the Lord is capitalized but in small capitals, right? Well, what that means is that's the term for Yahweh. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, I want you to remember that this is the personal name for God. This is the name that, that we're still not exactly sure how to pronunciate because the Jews wouldn't pronunciate it. Because it's such a personal name for God. Yet God addresses in this letter, He says, I, your personal God. I, your God. Not, not someone else's God. Your God. I, Yahweh. And whenever you see that term Lord, L-O-R-D, like that, I want you to remember that God is making a statement. And He is saying, I am your God. I am your personal God. I know you. And I love you. I am your God. And so God says, I, the Lord, I, Yahweh. And then it's interesting how he continues because he says, I, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, the, 
The term here for God is also interesting because it's the term Elohim. Now, Elohim in Hebrew is actually a plural form of gods. In Jewish theology and in biblical text, you'll find the term Elohim, God, to sometimes be written G-O-D-S with a small g, talking about the gods of the nations. And sometimes in our text here, it's written as G-O-D, capital G-O-D, the God of Israel. But it's a very generic term. So God says, listen, I am your personal God. But I am also the God, the God of the nations. He says, I'm the God of Israel. But in saying it like this, in saying I am the the Elohim, he's saying I am the God of the nations. I am in control of everything that happens in this world. Now, isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? That the God of Israel, the Elohim, is the God of the nations. And not only is He the God of the nations, but He is the Yahweh. He is your God. He is your personal God. And so, Jeremiah begins his letter and he reminds Israel that He is God. And that it is He who has sent them into exile. It was not Nebuchadnezzar. It was not the power of Babylon. Had God so chosen, He could have, and demonstrated over and over and over again in the Old Testament, He could have wiped out Nebuchadnezzar, and He could have wiped out Babylon at any moment that He wanted to. As they got up to the gates of Israel, He could have sent a plague. When they got up to the gates of Israel, He could have blinded their eyes. He could have turned them against one another. We see that over and over and over again in the Old Testament, right? And so God says to Israel, he says, listen, I'm in control. I'm sovereign. I know exactly what's going on. You know, when we live in a world that's broken by war and suffering and and pain and difficulties, it is so good to know that God is in control. God is in control. God is sovereign and he is in control. And man, I just praise Him for that. I thank Him that He is in control, that I'm not in control, that President Obama's not in control, that Russian President Putin is not in control. God is in control. And God has a plan. God has a plan. So we see here in this text that God indeed has a plan. And we think about that in, in the relation of, of immigrants. We, we in this year are going to take 80,000, and then next year, more than that. And then our third year, I think we're going to take up to 100,000 refugees throughout the United States. What an incredible opportunity to share gospel with people who don't know, who haven't heard. They're coming to our doors. They're coming inside our walls. When I lived in North Africa, we had to be really, really careful with a lot of the things that we said and the way that we did things, Right? Because we could get blacklisted. We could get kicked out. And in the end, I was blacklisted. I'm not allowed to go back to Morocco. I've tried two or three different times now. And every time I get to the border, they say, I'm sorry, you're not allowed in. I say, well, why aren't I allowed in? They say, because we don't want you. And uh, I think, well, that's not fair. Why wouldn't you want me? I'm a really nice guy. And uh, they say, because. I say, why? And they say, because we don't want you. And that's as simple as it gets, right? 
But you know what? These countries that we can't go to, God is sending them to us. And he's sending them to us in such a way that we can do whatever we want. We can share the gospel with them. We can sit down and give them a Jesus film. We can give them Bibles. We can love them. We can talk to them about Jesus. We can do whatever we want because, you see, they're in our free country. And they're seeing this freedom. And they're seeing this liberty. And they're struck by it. Because for the first time in their life, they actually have freedom to choose. For the first time in their life, they actually have freedom to say, this is what I want to be. This is who I want to follow. Which they never had had before. So God, we see that he has a plan. Second thing I want you to see here in this text, which is just so applicable to us, is in verse 4. I mean, verse 5. It says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. God says to Israel, he says, I have placed you, excuse me, I got some ice in my mouth, it's going to crunch here in a minute, it's going to go. God, God says to Israel, he says, listen, where I have placed you. I want you to plant gardens. Now, what you need to understand is, is that in this day and age, 90% of the world were, were sustenance farmers. They lived on their, their products that, that they, they planted. They lived off of their gardens. They weren't going to, to work every day. They didn't have banks. They didn't have other businesses. There were no insurance companies. You know, I mean, they just basically lived on what they had. And so God is saying to Israel, he's saying, I want you to go to work every day. That's what God is saying. I want you to go to work every day. And then he's saying, and I want you to marry. And I want you to have sons and daughters. And I want you to get wives and husbands for your sons and your daughters. And then you'll have grandchildren. And God is saying to Israel, this is something that I want you to do. It's not something that's going to last for just a moment. But this is something that's going to last for 70 plus years. And so Israel was to remember that they were to be in this country and they were to go to work every day. And they were to have families. And they were to live their lives as everyone lives their lives. But the difference being that they were followers of Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. And that would be different from everyone else. Now I want you to think about that application for us for just a minute. I realize that that we need to rewrite it a little bit because none of us are sustenance farmers. We don't, we don't live on just what we plant in our backyards, which is a really good thing for me because I would be dead by now. Um, <clears throat> not, a, not a great farmer here. Um, come from a family of farmers, but we, I lost it somewhere. Didn't get the gene, got it from my mom's side. I don't know what happened, but if, if I plant it, I can kill it. Um, but you're not supposed to kill your plants, right? You know. So anyway, God is saying to Israel, he's saying, I want you to go work. I want you to go do what you do. And as you do what you do, as you have families, and as you live in this place, I want you to be salt. And I want you to be light, like it says in Matthew chapter 5. Those are Old Testament terms that talk about how Israel was to live in the world. And God is saying to us here as well, He's saying, go to your work, go to your place of employment. Get married, have children, get wives and sons for your children, and enjoy your grandchildren. And as you're doing that, live in such a way that everyone knows you're different. Live in such a way that everybody sees the gospel in your life. And then they'll question. And they'll ask, why are you like that? 
Now, it's really interesting when we look at this passage, we see that Israel was stuck and, and they were put in exile. And as we go through the Old Testament, we find that, that not all of Israel goes back, do they? In fact, a, a big part of Israel stays in exile. And in fact, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. If you flip over to Acts chapter 2, you get the fulfillment of what God has done in the exile. Remember, this was God's purpose. This was God's plan for the nations. And so in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, Luke goes to great lengths to talk about the people who are in Jerusalem. And look in verse 7. The the disciples came out and they were speaking in other languages. I'm sorry. And in verse 9 it says, Luke goes to great lengths to tell us who's there. And he says, there are Parthians and Medes. Now that's going up into Iraq. That's going up into Baghdad. That's going up into Babylonian. The Medes, remember? The Medes and the Persians, right? So it's, it's taking people right there where they were exiles. But they weren't just exiled there, remember? They were exiled all over the world, the known world at that time. The Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia. I like Phrygia. It just seems cold, doesn't it? Um... Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and what? Proselytes. Jews and proselytes? Did the Jews proselyte? Absolutely. Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and they were amazed and they were perplexed. What does this mean? And uh, then Peter delivers this incredible sermon, and, and three to five thousand, which is it here? It's three thousand, I think, come to faith because they had been prepared. You see, Luke goes through that passage, and, and what has happened here is, is this is a big Jewish celebration, the, the day of Pentecost. And so people were to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate that. But it wasn't just Jews that came, is it? It was also proselytes. And you remember later it talks about God-fearers in the book of Acts? Where did God-fearers come from? Who is this Cornelius who's a legionnaire that's a God-fearer? Where did he ever hear of God? Well, you heard it from those who were in exile. Who went to work the next day and had families and had grandchildren and great-grandchildren but lived in such a way that everyone around them saw the uniqueness of a follower of Yahweh. Tomorrow, as you go to your workplaces, as you go to those places that God has sent you to, may you not forget that just as the exiles, you are to live there. And you are to be gospel. You are to be light. You are to be salt among your co-workers and your neighbors and your friends. That's what Israel was called to do, and that's what they ended up doing. And so in Acts chapter 2, you see this explosion of the church. Because Israel had lived out their lives in the way that they were supposed to. All right, real quickly, we, we need, to, we need to, to, to get to, to closing, but it's, it's hard. There's a lot to do. Just so you know, normally when I teach it, it can be anywhere from 50 to 3 hours. So, um, 50 minutes to 3 hours. So we'll try and keep it in there. Um, I'm teasing. We're not going to go that long. Not the 3 hours anyway. 
Um, I'm joking, I'm joking. So he says, build, wives, build houses, take wives. So he's telling us how we're supposed to live, multiply there. Um, I have sent you into exile, God says. That's, that's cool. Look at verse 7 for a minute. This is, this is really neat in verse 7. I like this a lot. It says, but seek the welfare of the city I have sent you to into exile. Who sent them? Nebuchadnezzar? No, Yahweh. They're God. They're personal God, right? God sent them there. God, think about this for just a minute. Has God sent you to your workplace? Has God sent you to your place of employment? My son was saying the other day, and, and he's really struggling with some things, and, and he said, man, Dad, I don't like Sundays. I said, man, Sundays are a great day. He said, oh, not, not because of church. I don't like Sundays because it means Monday I have to go to work. Right? How many of us start to dread Sunday evening? Man, tomorrow i got to go to work, right? We ever thought that this is the greatest mission field God sent us into? We get to be salt and light in a world that's hurting and dying and suffering. And God has privileged us to be in that workplace so we could be salt and light. And so God says to, to, to them, where I have sent you, God has sent you to that job. Don't think that, that it, was, it was something else. God sent you there. I believe that with all my heart. God has you there. He has you there for a reason. So God has sent you there. So he says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. I wonder how much time we spend praying to the Lord on behalf of our coworkers. How much time we spend praying to the Lord on behalf of our bosses, of those that we manage, of those that we work with. Because you see, they need the gospel. They're desperate for the gospel. To live without the gospel is to live in enmity, to, to live in anger with God. It's to live in, in, in wrong relationship with him. They need Jesus. So he says, pray to them. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find welfare. Now, I want you to know one thing about that word welfare. There is a word in the Bible that we all know. Um, have any of you all been to the Middle East? Anybody been to Israel? Okay, so when you go to Israel, you, whenever you greet someone, you say the word shalom, right? That's the standard greeting. And the word shalom means what in English? How do we normally translate it? It means peace, right? It means peace. Well, a lot of times we just kind of give it a pretty flat definition. There. Well, did you know that the three times that the word welfare is used here, it's actually the word shalom in Hebrew? Isn't that interesting? So perhaps shalom has a deeper meaning than just an absence of strife. I think that when you go back to, to the book of Genesis, and we don't have time to, to, to develop all of this this morning, but in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have this beautiful picture of shalom. In Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, you have everything right with nature. You have everything right between Adam and God, and everything right between Adam and Eve, the other. Right? Everything is perfect. The end of Genesis chapter 2, it says, And Adam and Eve were naked, and they felt no shame, because they were right relationship. And then in Genesis chapter 3, it talks about God coming down in the cool of the day to walk with Adam and Eve. There's this picture of harmony up until sin enters in. And sin breaks shalom. Sin destroys shalom. Destroys shalom. The only way to have true peace is to have shalom with God. 
And the only one who can bring us shalom with God is Jesus Christ. I have friends who pray five times a day. I have friends who, who go to Mass and, and uh, who go and confess to a priest. I have friends who, who worship their idols and, and their gods in their place, in their home. I have religious friends. And they seek God. But you know what? They will never find Him apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I don't care how religious your friend is. I don't care how religious you are. See, we can come to church every Sunday too, right? We can pray. We can stand up and we can give our offerings. And if we're dependent on the things that we do to bring us into right relationship with God, we don't have shalom either. The only place we'll find shalom is through the gift of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who, who came from heaven, lived an earthly life, and was crucified for our sins, was raised three days later, demonstrating that he was more powerful than death, demonstrating that he was more powerful than sin, and demonstrating that he is the only way to the Father. And your friends and your neighbors and the refugees that are around us, they need to know that Jesus is the only way. They need to know that there is no shalom apart from Jesus Christ. And so Israel went out and they prayed for the welfare, the shalom of the city. And they, they sought its shalom. Seek the shalom of the city. Seek the peace, the right relationship with God of the city. Pray for the right relationship with God for the city for in its shalom you will find your shalom. As it discovers peace, you'll be blessed with greater peace. Because Jesus is the answer. We see a world that is exploding around us. I, I read the newspaper and teach a globalization class right now. And one of the first things that we do in class is we talk about how the world is just really in a lot of ways exploding. Between a Iran nuclear deal and everything else in the Middle East and Syria and ISIS and Turkey and now Russia. It's a world that's exploding. May we never forget that God is a God who is in charge. And when Babylonian comes and says, look at what we've done, God says, no, look at what I have done. I'm bringing the nations to your door. I'm giving you jobs. I'm putting you in places of employment so that you can be light, salt, shalom to the nations. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you, we realize that we play a unique role in history in that we follow you. We don't follow rule, rulers. We don't follow other principalities. We don't follow men. We don't follow women. We follow you. And you, God, have placed us in this world to be salt and light. So tomorrow, Father, I pray for this congregation as it, it goes forth. And as each person goes to their job, God, I pray that you would remind them that they are to seek the welfare of those around them. They are to seek the shalom. They are to pray for shalom for their coworkers. Even that coworker they don't get along with, that coworker who is their enemy, 
They are to love him or her. Oh God, it is such an honor to be called your children. Help us to live that in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.